0: This week on The Product Experience, we are revisiting an oldie but a goodie. So if you are in the process of trying to lead and potentially survive through a company transformation, this is definitely the episode for you. Esther Weinberg is the CEO and founder of The Ready Zone, a company which helps other businesses through this exact process. And she knows what she's talking about. It's one of my favorite episodes, and that's why we've decided to revisit it again.
1: The product experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week on the podcast, we talk to the best product people from around the globe.
0: Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and discover loads of free resources to help you with your product practice. You can also find more information about Mind the Product's conferences and their great training opportunities happening around the world and online.
1: Create a free account on the website for a fully personalized experience, and to get access to the full library of awesome content and the weekly curated newsletter. Mind the product also offers free Product Tank meetups in more than 200 cities. There's probably one near you.
0: Hi, Esther. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today.
2: Thank you so. Thank you both so much. I am excited for this. I think it's going to be a joy. It's always great to be in conversation about these topics. Awesome. I think it's really relevant for people today because there's so much, you know, head exploding change happening to everybody. So yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah.
0: And um, so before we get into our head exploding change, <laughs> um, it'd be great for our listeners, if you could give us a real quick intro to who you are and like your background and, and how you, yeah, how you got into it.
2: Yeah. So I've, I've had, all right. So I started my career on, I'll just do very quick. I started my career on publicity, corporate communications, marketing side of things. And then I, uh, I i did it on the agency side. I did it for big brand names like Disney and Fox. And I had left the corporate world many years ago. And I started my own company that does, that initially I was like, oh, we're, we're going to do leadership development, right? And then we started doing it both domestically and internationally, including in places like um, Africa and the Middle East. And, and then uh, we also created a we developed ourselves into what we call the Ready Zone framework, which what I would say is where we find ourselves as leaders today want to feel ready to take advantage of all the opportunities and challenges at their feet. They just question is the big question is how, right? Practically, pragmatically. And we really believe you do so by creating these workplace cultures where trust, respect, and psychological safety are not just valued. No one would probably argue with that, but they're as measured as the bottom line. And so we've mm-hmm. created what we call zone performance indicators. they are um, they're areas, they are diagnostic areas to see if you're doing it. We've been doing this work inside of big brands, small brands, big bands, and tiny brands that most people would know like Netflix, Sony, ESPN, Microf- Microsoft, um, Disney, and so those are some of the large scale brands. And you name a large scale brand, especially on media and tech side, we probably work with them.
0: I love the I love the business name, the Ready Zone. It like gives me all the feels. <laughs> 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 and, yes. uh, I'm like, yeah, we're going to be ready. We could do this. And uh, and it feels like a, re- a real kind of like product management sort of approach to, to leadership of like measuring the sort of softer side of leadership as well as the, the business side of like the output of the business or the, the outcome of like revenue and all of that kind of thing as well. But before we get kind of stuck into like some of the fundamentals of what you think is important in leaders today to to be in that ready zone uh there was a stat that um you sent through when we were kind of prepping for this which was around 900 billion is wasted on failed business transformations each year so where is this money going like why are businesses getting it so wrong in terms of like managing change within their business and adapting to new things that are coming their way?
2: Well, first of all, it's a great question about where the money is going. And uh, I I would say good luck finding it. But I would say that <laughs> I, would, I would say that there's a few things that you have to take a look at, right? Because um about what's also causing this velocity and also our approach to change. So first of all, you know if you think about digitization has hyperconnected us. It's harder to predict how things are going to go and the rate of change has increased exponentially. There's new threats and opportunities that can seemingly appear overnight, like COVID as an example. And I would say there's, we keep talking about things uh, such as change, we keep talking about change in a siloed bucket, like change management. We have change management practitioners, we have change management inside of organizations, but there is no such thing as change management any longer. And if you think about it, we need, um, as Dr. Andy Zuckery called it, dynamic realignment. Well, as you get feedback, adaptive systems quickly realign to move better than they've been before. So if you think about it, what we really need to be doing here, and the big opportunities that now exist for product leaders, non-product leaders, leaders in general. Is how do you develop the skills and the nimbleness for the dexterity that you need to go through any kind of climate? And what we've seen, if you look at it, if you think about it, COVID is a great example because what COVID did is change everything. Nothing in, I know in my lifetime has ever shaken the ground as much as this because it happened to all of us all at the same time globally, same thing happened, right? And so we need to stop talking about changes it to one-time event. We have to start preparing people to move nimbly and dexterously through it. And I think that's why businesses, I don't know, I could say if it's getting it wrong, but I think we need to start evolving our mindset and how we're evaluating, rewarding people um, through mobility, moving people up um, by having a new way of looking at the way we do work. Like, how
0: does that manifest itself in the business and in the, the behavior of the teams? Like, what does a, a very adaptable agile team really look like?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So we created a, uh, what we call zone performance indicators, what I mentioned before. And so we've created these six diagnostic areas to know if you yourself are doing this in the way that's going to be most successful. Because we found that, to your point, it's like, we're, all right, that's lovely. I, you know what you're saying? I can't, agree, I can't agree with more. But that's where's the practicality around it, right? So the six areas that we do just very quickly, um, we have, and there's not necessarily any order, just to be clear, pivot ready, the degree of shiftability that we're talking about now. Action ready is all around your level of emotional agility. Influence ready, your visibility, your influence, your relationships connect ready. is around your communication. Impact ready is how you're building teams. And culture ready is developing a culture where coaching and mentoring is not like, oh, we'll do it in a program. I'll do it once off. It's like, no, everyone is walking around looking for opportunities to do it. So to give you a real time example of what you're talking about, we, one thing that we talk about, we teach people resiliency by creating what we call pivot moments. So like we're talking about, we can't control change, but what we can control is our intention and our actions. And if you ask people to shift for a moment, it's like, I can do that. But if you ask me to change forever, that's a problem. So, <laughs> so we if you think about it, because if you think about shifting for a moment, yeah, I can. I, what's possible is potentially unlimited. So what these pivot moments are a framework of three things. Very practical. You can use this both for your professional life and personal life. So, one, it's made up of looking at what your current reality is. And that's made up of how you feel about the change or your emotions, how you experience the change and the actions or inactions you're taking that could support the changes or not. And if you're really honest with yourself, you could see if your output is a match for your intention. So, we had a client, Aisha, the other day who's gotten really frustrated with her boss, Jamila. And Jamila is the president of a division at a large company. And she was very frustrated with Jamila because she can't make decisions. She vacillates, she goes back and forth. She can't really handle conflict. And Aisha is seen as as kind of the, the, um, I hate to use hierarchy, but really like the number two executive on the team. And so what does Aisha do? She starts to step in and start making decisions where she shouldn't or looks to be more strategic out of sheer frustration or even looks to manage one of her peers who can't make decisions. And you can imagine for a high performer, it's really str- struggling. So her emotions is she's angry, she's frustrated, she's disappointed, she's afraid. Her experience about her boss is she doesn't know how to lead. Her lack of decision-making is going to make get the division really into trouble from a financial perspective. She isn't strategic. She leads with her ego. But we looked at what actions she was taking to support her intention of managing up with greater ease being a collaborator she's like look if i had to admit it one, i'm stepping in to make decisions where it's not appropriate when it was time to present a reorganization plan to her boss with her peer he's not remember he's not strategic so she started she did it <laughs> so she's not sharing her frustration and she was thinking about leaving which would be detrimental to the organization so when you actually, when we say pivot in this moment, what does it mean for Asia? She can, what she did was pause when she examined us to see what's feasible. And that's what I call possibility, right? So we do the current reality, possibility, and you could see something for what it is and not what you prefer. And once you see that, you can step into a place of opportunity, third phase. And that is to determine practically and pragmatically what you need to stop and start doing to create a new outcome. And then once you do that, then the road in front of you is super clear because you're able to separate, untether yourself from how you're interpreting the situation, your emotions around it, to really what's the, what's the what's so about it. So then you can move forward with greater ease. So that's like a small example. But just imagine if everyone inside your organization was thinking that way, how different work and the relationship that people had at work would be.
1: Mm. That's I'm curious because th- this was uh, something that happened kind of dynamically, but also was something that was building for a while in this case. But transformation can come in two ways. It can the impetus can come in two ways. It can be planned, you know, like we're going to yeah. go through a corporate reorganization, or it can be a sudden thing that suddenly changes and you, you're purely reactive to it. Um yeah. Is this different based on whether you're being proactive in the first place and taking the time, or being reactive, or is there a fundamental difference in how you act in transformations when being proactive and reactive?
2: It's such a great question. I would say that um, I, I would say no, and here is why: because no matter what is is what's happening, as human beings, we're making interpretations about it, and that interpretation about it becomes our reality this is great. This sucks. This is positive. This is negative. This is going to be detrimental for me. This is going to be horrible for my people. Very, And we always, it's human nature that we're making interpretations. But what happens is that there's the truth of the situation. There's the meaning we make out of it. And then there's the impact if we see it from the meaning that we're making out of it, right? And then we tend to move based on The meaning we're making out of it. And that's not necessarily the reality. And so, what happens is that you can imagine if you're moving very fast, even more detrimental to the organization. Because what Pivot Moments does, it's an intentional pause. Now, you don't need a year to sit down with a pen, a piece of paper, forgive me for sounding so old school, or an app or anywhere. You can literally, what we encourage people to do is, we teach people the formula. So it's almost like, um, it's like a client of mine once said, she's like, it was a scene at a minority report. She's like, I'm sitting in a, in a senior executive meeting, sitting, sitting with the CEO and he starts talking to me and in front of me, I could see the formula and in my head, I'm processing it so that when I'm speaking, I'm not speaking to my reaction. I'm speaking to the truth of the situation and how I really want things to land. And how do I want to start and stop being in this room with these people? And how can I lead in my intention? So I would say that it's agnostic to situations uh, because it's a question of, you know, it's like anything. If you're going to learn something new, like, for example, if someone listening goes, you know, this is really interesting. I'm going to practice this, but it seems like it's going to take a while for me to get used to it. I always say better to start something and do it crappily then not start a new behavior (laughs) that can lead to a new outcome at all. It it takes something to become a habit.
1: Esther, that's really interesting. What you're talking about there about uh, people having different perceptions and different realities. So I coach a lot and there's a problem that I see again and again for people and no one's figured out how to do this one especially well. So I'm curious about what kind of uh, change leadership we we might do through this. So it has to do with uh, often as a company is growing, the product team takes longer to ship things or to deliver value. And there's a perception from the CEO that it's not like it used to be, that things are too slow, that the team, product development team isn't, isn't delivering value quickly enough. And they, ju- you know, it's just ship anything, just get something out the door, just get this one little thing that's going to fix everything out the door. And the product team wants to be a little more deliberate and validate things and they may be delivering value, but it's not the magic bullet. And I'm curious: uh, is there a way to, from for for a product leader to try and approach that, to try and make some consensus, or to change the situation through through this framework?
2: Yeah. So, so I I would say it's it's a few things. Okay, and there's not a silver bullet for everything. So I would just say it this way: it's actually interesting because you're reminding me of something that happened the other day with the CEO who got very inflamed about something because his perception and interpretation of the situation was very different than the situation itself. And so he was very much like what you're describing. I mean, the situation was different about, he wasn't talking about shipping something in the moment, but he was talking about, I, I don't care, get it done. Now, what happened, it was interesting because we were, In a room with about four people having the conversation. Now, the next day, I had a conversation one on one with the CEO because what I would say is that you have to be very careful when you're in who you're in the room with and when you choose to dissent. And so you have to remember that it's your relationship. And what I would say is number one, what happens in those moments, like when we talk about the, um, this is a different concept, but we talk about reality check, which is kind of what I was talking a little bit what I was talking about for reality check is a framework we talk about, which is what's the truth? What's your interpretation? What's the impact of seeing it from your interpretation, and then go back to your original intention. So what happens is when someone says something that's a misalignment to what you believe is right, right, is that we get triggered, and then we go into our interpretation of either the person or the situation. What we don't do sometimes, I'm not saying this is always, right? So this is things to be, these are things to think about in the moment. Number one is you don't want to dissent sometimes in a room full of people because it's not smart. Number two is you want to, as a old boss of mine, you say, get consensus privately before you get consensus publicly. And so like what happened with the CEO is the next day, um, one of his Executives in the room had FaceTime with him and said, I really am curious as to what brought you to that decision. And I just want to apologize to you that we haven't delivered with velocity on time. And it seems like our deadlines are a little off. You just want us to move no matter what. And I just would, is there any way that you could just share with me what your expectations are, where we felt off the mark, and also what are your expectations now moving forward? Because I want to make sure that we recolab- calibrate to it. So, number one, I would say go back and have an individual conversation with the person, if possible. Number two, get really curious about what is what is the context to which they're operating from, because oftentimes, especially in a hierarchical matrixed organization, we don't have all the information, and so we're operating from different contexts. And also, expectations and context change so fast we don't know it, and so we don't, often don't go back to reexamine. Is their context different than mine? Because it probably changed five minutes ago. Someone just walked into their office. This is Like the CEO I'm talking about, he makes decisions in like, he's very reactive. And so five minutes ago, someone walked into the office and said, hey, you should worry about that. And he's like, oh yeah, I'll worry about that, right? So you want to make sure that you're operating from the same context. The other thing too is that at the end of the day, let's say all that, all that's beautiful, but you still have to move. Let's just play that game out, right? Because that happens. What I would say oftentimes is you have to anchor yourself. So oftentimes as a leader, you have to support a decision that was made by others above you and you are not 100% in favor of. Now, it depends on what we're talking about. If we're talking about something that will harm people's lives, be detrimental to the life of others, that's a different thing than what I'm talking about right now. And uh, in fact, I had a, a client who went through this, they had supply chain issues and they were just like, ship, whatever you have. And he's like, wait a second. <laughs> so, um, but I would say the company relies on you to be an advocate with your team. And you may have a hard time reconciling that with being genuine because the decision that was made or the message that's being sent is not in fact what you feel or, or is the ideal or best. And so, like I said, I'm not referring to decisions that call you be unethical or against your values. I'm talking about situations where perhaps you agree up to a point and you'd prefer that it's settled a bit differently or that the implementation was different. And when you have the responsibility of conveying and promoting a decision like that or a message, you have to look for elements or aspects of that decision or message that you can connect with, that can resonate with you, that you can sincerely get on board with and anchor yourself to those. And then you can come before your team, or frankly, before yourself, and you can move them in the direction that's expected of you and do it from a genuine place. Because the worst thing, it'd be like, this person's an idiot and a fool, but we should still do this. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it seems like you just can't breathe these days without hearing the term A.I., Tell me
1: about it. If I hear someone say AI one more time, I'm
0: I'm gonna scream. When ChatGPT launched, it felt like things absolutely snowballed, and it's quite an effort to keep up with it all, which is why I wanted to tell you all about Mind the Product's brand new AI Knowledge Hub. Um, I told you I was gonna scream, didn't I? But actually, tell me more. Please don't scream. <laughs> <laughs> It's a dedicated place for all things AI with a wealth of completely free content from voices in the field, including insights from working product managers and AI experts. In the AI Knowledge Hub, created in collaboration with Pendo, you'll discover a range of free resources that will help you delve into the world of AI. You can learn what AI truly is explore its impact on product management, and dive into extensive case studies that showcase how product teams have harnessed AI to improve their craft.
1: Okay, there'll be no screaming this time because that sounds like a good way to actually explore the angles of AI in product management. Is there anything in particular you'd
0: recommend? Absolutely. Sign up for a free AI webinar, download the free AI playbook, and take the brand new AI for Product Management online course in partnership with Google Cloud. Just visit mindtheproduct.com forward slash AI Knowledge Hub and dive in. Um, And I think one of the sort of, you know, big trends that we're seeing at the moment is a lot of companies going through restructuring um, and layoffs. Um, at the moment. Um, and I guess, you know, as a leader within the organization, you may or may not um, agree with the the process that's kind of happening, but you're, you, you know, you you are essentially sort of having stuff happen to you and also having to support and manage your team through that process. So what advice would you have for leaders, team leaders kind of undergoing that process, you know, from like just keeping your job to like retaining your sanity um and also, you know, maybe making the most of the opportunity?
2: Well, uh, let me give you an example. I had a um, client of mine was president of the division and she was asked to cut her workforce by about 20 percent. And not so she was asked to cut her workforce by 20 percent and she had never laid that many people off. So she got communication to her that, so I said to her, because I was coaching her, I said, you "No, know, have you ever done this before? What does that look like? What support are you getting internally? And she said, I'm not sure, but, you know, I'll get back to you. So she says to me, I got an email that said, here's how I should fire someone. And, uh, and she sent it to me. And it was, um, and the way it read was, something like, I know it's horrifying. It was something like, um, you know, at our company, we've been working with you in a long time. We have hard decisions to make and we're in a tough financial spot, blah, 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 on and on and on. And I said to her, the only thing they're going to hear when they sit down with you is I'm fired. Not going to hear any of that. And also they're not Mm going to care about that. And I said, how do you want to do this? She's like, there's no human dignity in this for me. She said, if I have to do this, I need a one, get behind it. And I have to figure out how I get behind it. And what she realized was that there was a whole division who reported to her, 20 people, who she really liked. But at the end of the day, she realized that she probably should have eliminated the division probably a year or more ago. And so she said, you know, I want to make sure when I do this, I do this with human dignity. So my intention for all of this is that I do it with human dignity, and then I have a plan for the people that are remaining to help them feel cared for engaged. And I, so what I do is before, cause they don't know they're being laid off, right? People are remaining. I make sure that I tuck them in as much as possible. So what she did was she created a whole different through this, that horrible email out the window and create a whole messaging system for how she was going to speak out of her heart, which was very hard for this person. She always operates out of her very analytical head of how she actually speaks with her heart that she can actually let these people go. That's number one. Number two is then what she did was she met with every single person who was remaining and started creating a mini, almost like career map development map for them. So they could feel like where they are here, even though they're, they're so grief stricken that their colleagues have left, that they're able to a be heard about their grief And they feel that there's a home and a place for them. So also you can't move when you're going through these times, you can't move so great, so fast into let's talk about your career here. You know, you have to acknowledge the grief that people are feeling from the situation. Not people won't get stuck in it if you actually acknowledge it, speak to them about it, and then start to move them forward. So that's what I would say about what to do.
0: Yeah, that makes loads of sense.
2: And So, you know, I want to say just one thing um, just about when you're talking about like layoffs and motivating your team, you have to remember there's data around this that 86% of employees say that a lack of internal communication is largely the blame for failures of the company. And then well-informed employees actually outperform their peers by 77%. And, and paradoxically, 69% of those in management positions actually don't feel comfortable even communicating with their staff. So we have to make sure that we're training and developing people in order to be strong communicators. So no matter what the situation and circumstances are, that they're able to do that.
1: Can we cover for a moment, what is what is good communication then? Because there's <laughs> yeah. lack of communication is obviously a problem but I've seen so much over-communication or poor communication or people sitting in long meetings that are not relevant to them or the same material that they've seen five times before. You know, I know as uh, leaders, we get the advice, say it seven times and, or say it until you're sick of it because it may be someone else's first time. But at the same time, that's not always the right way. to. So, How do you get to a point of, of, of quality communication?
2: Uh, yeah. So I would say that you have to remember that um just because your lips are moving doesn't mean you're actually saying anything meaningful or relevant. Right. Um, and especially during times of change, everything means everything. And it's even more upon you to be your word. So like I had an executive who got in front of her people and said, we're not laying anybody off anymore. You know what happened three months later? It was it was terrible. So you have to be careful also what you're promising people because in this kind of environment, it's very difficult to promise anyone anything. So I would say, it's not necessarily in order, but number one, you have to make sure that the messages that you're saying, first of all, they look like it didn't come out of a robot. You know, when people say, oh, our administration believes in the solutions that are in alignment with the market conditions. It's like, are you a person? Do you even... (laughs) care about me. So you have to make sure that the message is heart-based, that there's heartbeat messaging to this. And there's, I mean, it's, it's, um, I would say it's horrifying when you've, I mean, you've, you've been part of this when you've heard people talking and just like, Oh my God, is there, hello. There was Mm -hmm. actually a great example. Um, Have you heard of the um, what happened with better.com? Did you hear about what happened with that? So a great of not doing this well is uh, CEO Vishal Garg CEO of the mortgage lender startup better.com after he rec- after the company received the 750 million cash infusion with a valuation of 7 billion he bluntly informed 900 of his employees that a large number of people would be fired in this cold awkward one-way video announcement you can actually google it and um, and basically in looking really uncomfortable he said 15% of the workforce would be laid off in a monotone voice and he said this is the second time in my career I'm doing this and I don't want to do this last time I did it I cried this time I hope I hope to be stronger i mean this is literally the way he delivered it and then later he apologized and he and also fortune magazine reported that that he accused at least 250 Of the people that he 250 people that he fired of stealing from the company and customers by working just two hours a day. So um he wrote in an email something like an all caps like, hello, wake up, you're too damn slow, you know, like that kind of thing. So that's not what I'm talking about. So so (laughs) you have to remember that number one, your caring touch peep touches something in me that ignites me to care. And so show who you're in communication with your sincerity and spirit in order for your message to ring true and for it to be genuine. And so the second thing is make sure that there's actually one key takeaway. I remember I used to work for a woman named Ellen Cooper who always used to say, make sure there's one must make point. You know that when people leave all your verbatim that you've said, it's clear the one thing you want people to leave with. What is that one key message that is meaningful to them? You know, it's and that you can repeat to your point. Right. But that because the more you clutter up your messaging and often people clutter it up because they feel guilty or they feel shame and they don't want to do it. But you're a leader. And so as a leader, this comes with the territory. And so how do you get aligned with your message so it's clear? This third thing I would say is remember, like what I said before, is be have curiosity and be really actively listening. Because oftentimes we relate to a present conversation from our past, our judgments, our biases, and it's normal. The question is, do we recognize that pattern or do we speak and listen from our past? So you have to listen from a position of curiosity right now and give yourself an opportunity to be open and listening in the present. The The other point is to anchor yourself. We talked about that. You also have to invest in positively building relationships with others. People have to know when I get up in front of them, hey, you know, Esther's always been really honest with us. Mm. So she's been honest. She's been direct. You know what? I know when she's telling me something, it's meaningful. So you've got to actually trust that. And Mm. that's why context is so critical and being consistent with your message is going to be very, because the moment you're inconsistent, people can't trust you. And then it becomes unsafe and you don't want to leave more uncertainty, more lack of safety, more ambiguity on, on top of an already ambiguous situation. So just
0: when we're thinking about leadership through change, um, whether that be big or small, um, like all of the, all of the kind of advice that you've given there on like what good leadership looks like is, is great, but then, are there other sort of specific skills that leaders need to nurture in order to sort of successfully lead through, through change? Like you mentioned that ability to sort of step back and see the reality of the situation rather than sort of be influenced by your emotional response to it. So um, how do we kind of develop those skills that to, to assess the current situation, and, and are there other things as well that we should be trying to, to do and to be more adaptable as leaders?
2: Yeah, you know, it's. Um, I would say you know it's interesting. I was reading uh, some data the other day that said that, you know, especially during times of change, we alluded to this earlier, um, but we we sometimes talk about what we're talking about today as soft skills. You know, like it's often used, right? Like this is soft skills, right? But I don't mm. believe. I th- wish we could just eradicate that phrase, right? And what I mean by that is there was data Data I was reading that 70% of employees avoid tough conversations with their boss, their colleagues, their direct reports. That And that actually translates into $7,500 per conversation of lost in time resources. I mean, if you start doing the math in your head, right? So... Um, one in five employees estimate that their lack of ability to speak up in really crucial moments has cost their organization more than $50,000. That's one in five. And 40% say they waste two weeks or more ruminating about a problem. And so going back to your $900 billion, right, I think we may find it. U.S. employees actually spend almost three hours a week dealing with conflict, which equals five, $59 billion in unpaid hours. Wow. No, 50 billion in paid hours, not unpaid, paid hours (laughs) and time. And so if we're going to look for strategies, right, right, which is what you're talking about, like how do we actually then deal with this? So I often say that the one thing we teach this, it's called, I affectionately call it the five A's. And so what I mean by that is um, oftentimes how we prepare for conversations sets us up for actually how we can move through the conversation. So what we say is, there's five questions that are important to answer when you're engaging in any conversation that may be squirrely for you. And the five A's stand for aware, accurate, acquire, accountability, and action. So number one, aware, what am I feeling? Number two, what is the truth? Is it accurate or just my own personal interpretation? Number three, acquire. What learning am I meant to acquire from being in this situation? I often say, even if you are 1% off, because sometimes people are like, I'm right. But even if you're 1% off, what would you you learn here? Um, Accountability, what's my part in this situation? What responsibility can I take? And the fifth A is what proactive action can I take? And that action isn't always a conversation. It could be lurking at yourself and your actions. It could be, hey, I need more people to make this decision, right? But I find that if you ask yourself those five questions before you engage in a conversation, you're more ready to actually have, you know what intervention makes sense, and then you're much more prepared to be able to facilitate the conversation itself, which could go a thousand different ways, right? And so... I, we're going back to communication. If we could master even just that, I think it could, I mean, $59 billion. I mean, it's crazy, right? Yeah.
1: Esther, this has been fantastic. We've got time for one last question and I fear it's going to be a challenging one. So, okay. Wait. Okay. <laughs> um, so all of this makes sense. All of this is hard enough to do at the best of times. But yeah. now we're also operating in in a time where we're no longer face-to-face a lot of the time. We're doing this remote. We're doing it asynchronous. The cues that you get, the subtle cues that you get from being around other people uh, all the time, they're just not there. There's so a building that yeah. culture, building that communication. What what do we do differently? Uh, how do we take this into a world where we're asynchronous and hybrid and remote and all of that?
2: Well, I would say the, uh, this is even to take a step back even further. You remember the good old days? <laughs> remember the good old days when we used to come to work and we'd have dry cleaning and ping pong tables and. No, free no, snacks? where,
1: where, where in England we didn't get those perks.
2: Oh, Okay, all right. So in the US, we got all those fun perks. We got like dry cleaning and ping pong tables and free food and free coffee bars and all of that, right? And so that sounds. Lovely, right? Isn't that fun? Like come to work. I always said it was really a smart bribing system to have people work longer, you know, (laughs) but but um, it was great, right? And that's part of how we judged how great a culture we were creating, right? And people would feel this community and we'd have these cool artsy areas where people could come together, right? And it was fun. Then COVID happened. Now what the hell happened with all that? But what we forgot is number one, is we have to create a workplace that's portable, a culture that is portable. And so what, as leaders, the number one thing you have to focus on is how to create, what do you want? What culture do you want to be portable, right? Because in COVID, it's still true to this day because we have not, and I'm speaking um, broadly, many companies have still, we're still trying to figure it out, I would say. But what happens is that um, we don't say, "Okay, if the culture is now in your living room and in your bedroom and in my closet and someone else's garage, what do we want people to experience and feel? Like I had an executive say to me a while ago, she said, we're struggling with hybrid. We're struggling with how to bring people back to work because we were in work three days a week, and then we have, we do have asynchronous work, right? And so we've got people in three days a week, home two days a week. And so, how do we get people in the office? Really struggling with that. I was like, it sounds like a prison. Sounds like all you're talking about is how do we get people into this building and lock them in <laughs> three days and then give them more action to do and then let them out, you know, at a certain time of day, right? But I said, why not it's important as executives to to sit together and say, what kind of environment do we wanna create for people that they're inspired to work in regardless of the medium? What do we want people to experience as being part of us, as being part of this community that we have here that we're intentionally creating in our environment? Now, sometimes people will say to me, well, I'm not CEO of the company. I can't make that decision. But the moment you're a leader of a team, you could absolutely do what I'm talking about. So that's the question you have to put at people's feet. Like I was working with a division who had just been reorganized. They had just been um, subsumed under another leader. And the, the, the woman who had taken the leadership position, she was new to leading such a huge team and she was like, you know, people seem excited, but I'm not really sure. I think we've got a lot of different temperaments. But well, what we did was one of the first things we did was we created what we call a vision narrative, which is a a narrative, an articulated vision of the future, not a sentence, but an actual picture, paint a picture of the future. Um, then what we did was out of her leadership team, the people that reported directly to her, we created what we call a team commitment. Now, given that's our North Star, what are we committed to in order Together, us, the, the six of us, and delivering on that, that we'd be excited about, right? Now, she has no idea of that vision, if her boss is going to sign off on that vision. But she's like, no, I'm I'm going to create that. Our team commitment, we are creating that. And then what ways in which do we want to operate in order to deliver on these things? And then what do you have now? You have people who are literally, she says to me the other day, more productive than they've ever been. People that were scared about change are now invigorated about it. The content, because they're part of a marketing team that we're creating, we've never created such a high level of market of content ever before. People are happier. We haven't had a single person leave. So yeah, it's absolutely nice. possible you have to shift the way that you're thinking you're not in an office anymore. Mm-hmm. So you have to think differently about how you're going to create culture. So those are the elements I would say. You've got to create vision narrative, a team commitment and what we call an impact guide, the ways in which we're working in order to deliver on that and hold yourselves accountable for you know, my village, my community, my fiefdom right here that can get people inspired no matter what's happening outside of us. Mm. That's in everyone's control. I think the other
0: thing that I've found just to, I know we're running out of time, but
2: <laughs> the other thing that
0: I've found, which I think really helps with this kind of move through asynchronous and and asynchronous and, and the hybrid workplaces just a kind of constant uh, reflection on how that's working for everybody and making sure that you know if someone's struggling because they don't have a very nice setup at home that you know that's that's dealt with or if you know people are struggling because they're overwhelmed with slack messages then that's kind of addressed as well. And just like, you know, a constant just check in on how is it working, like the ways in which we're working together? How How is that working for everyone? And what changes can we make to make our communication and everything easier and better on everyone?
2: You know, I think the other thing too, in and this is um, really important, it can't be overemphasized enough. Microsoft came out uh, last year, with an incredible report that talked about work trends in a hybrid work. And they talked about the fact that employees with an authentic manager, simple, right, are more inclined to go into the office, are more open to working in person if needed. Um, they're more likely to discuss their well being and mental health, which is something everyone's concerned about now. And so it's a, um, So we have to make sure that also I always talk about Microsoft talks about this too, but it's almost like if you were going to re-recruit your employees, how would you re-recruit them? What would you actually do that'd be different than what you're doing now in order to keep all this amazing talent? So you have to remember the cost of losing one person. Now, of course, your great people leave and the people that you would Prefer to leave stay. <laughs> so you have to <laughs> that's why you have to be even more engaged in what we're talking about, you know? And if people can't don't feel like they're learning, they're out. They'll leave fast. Yeah. Esther, this
0: has been so great. Um, you are a fountain of knowledge <laughs> with <laughs> this. Uh, topic area. And, um, you know, uh, I'm sure we'll have some great resources linked to in our show notes. So, yeah, thank you so much for joining us and and talking to us today.
2: My pleasure. Thank you both for great questions. I really appreciate the conversation.
0: Thanks, Esther. The product experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith.
1: And me, Randy Silver.
0: Lou Ron Pratt is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor.
1: Our theme music is from Hamburg based band POW. That's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank. Regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide.
0: If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank.